All right, well, good morning to everybody. Um, let's begin with prayer. Gil and I are going to throw some spaghetti against the wall again today, and hopefully some of it will stick. Um, let me get my notes out here. And then we will pray. All right. Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Sunday morning. Thank you already for the word that we heard and um, the, the ways in which even the way you ordered our lectionary readings today on this Trinity Sunday, how they have sort of propelled us into the discussion that we will have together in this class. And Lord, we uh, pray that you will give our hearts and our minds the knowledge, Lord, to understand the significance of your word revealed to us in the truths of the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to take a few minutes at the beginning uh, and get us out of the gate talking a little bit about Luther's interpretive approach to the Bible through the categories of law and gospel. Um, and we will sort of come back to this and sort of work through it. I'm going to talk for a few minutes and I think Gil's going to work us through some art and then we'll just have a free-for-all discussion of whatever you, it is you want to talk about. Um, so, uh, I, want, I, brought, I brought in Scott Hendricks' book, and I saw that you brought in another Hendricks volume. I wanted to read to you some, some, some of the context, again, the monastic context that was going on within of the world in which Luther was doing his early um, theological thoughts. You know, of course, he had his, con his conversion. Uh, he took to the monastery. I, I was reading Hendricks' biography a little bit this morning. Fascinating you know, Luther's turn toward the monastery may have been a much more complex phenomenon than, you know, sort of getting off the horse and walking right to the door and knocking. I mean, it's hard, hard to know all that went into that. Um, but by the time that Luther went to Wittenberg, the beginning of the 1510 decade, and began to start teaching there, um, the wheels were turning for him as he was beginning to think through the implications of what it meant to live in a monastic culture. Um, and, you know, we read a couple weeks ago the famous statement from Luther that, you know, if, if someone could have been saved by monkery, I, I, that would have been me. I, I could have done that. Um, so, you know, uh, Luther was, of course, in an Augustinian monastery. This has a significant sort of shaping on his understanding of, of the gospel. And, and his primary interlocutor and spiritual director through this time was Johann von Staupitz. Um, I wanted to read something to you. I have a couple quotes I wanted to read, and then I want to look at Galatians for a second. Um, so here is Martin Luther in 1516. Right, so he's in Wittenberg. He's been in Wittenberg for a while. He's overseeing uh, the monastic life there, doing regular amounts of teaching in, in a university and church context. And he writes a letter. And what I was quite taken by, by the way, in, in reading through this particular section, is um, the, the significance of the amount of busy work that Martin Luther had to do. This is one of the things that if I ever want to complain about lack of time, um, you know, I'm, I, uh, I'm taken with the amount of work that Martin Luther was able to do in the, in the moments of time that he had to work with. And we're talking about enormous amounts of, of administration, overseeing complex things like what does, a, what does someone who's a Dominican monk do when they want to become an Augustinian monk? Um, how do I console this person where this has happened? How do I deal with this particular problem that's arisen? How do we get the proper amount of food in? It means overseeing a lot of details and preaching on a regular basis. There is a record that on St. Bartholomew's Day that uh, Luther sends a note to one of the um, monks and says, get me everything you can on St. Bartholomew because I'm preaching on him at noon. You know, it was early in the morning. Right? That made me feel good, actually. It was great, right? So this is the kind of world in which Luther was living in. But he wrote a letter to a young monk named Spinlein, if I have his name correctly, 
Um, and Spenlein had left uh, Wittenberg to move down uh, to, in the, to the south to another monastery, and he left some books behind. And Spenlein sent a note to Luther asking Luther to sell the books. And when he sold the books, to use the proceeds to settle a debt that Spenlein had with Staupitz. So Luther sold the books and was apparently a bit short in covering the debt. So uh, Luther encouraged Spenlein to ask Staupitz, the guy that he was indebted to, to forego the full payment. Right. Now the rest of the letter that we have here, it's wonderful because it, it's, a, it's a bit of a role reversal. If you remember, um, Staupitz was uh, uh, Luther's spiritual director and guide, helping him navigate through the perplexity of his, of his tormented conscience. And part of the breakthrough for Luther in his understanding of God and God's saving, come on in, you got where there's room in the end. Um, and part of the good work that was done in Luther's own wrestling with the Bible and his wrestling with the identity of God was an unleashing of the reality of the priority of God's grace in all areas of Christian existence. And now, several years later, we see Luther taking that same role with a younger monk who is having the same problems of an internal troubled conscience. I wanted to read to you what Luther said because it sounded very much like what Staupitz would have said a decade ago to Luther. So this is what, what Luther says. Now I should like you to know, if your soul, tired of its own righteousness, is learning to be revived by and to trust in the righteousness of Christ, beware of, asp of aspiring to such purity that you will not wish to be looked upon as a sinner or to be one. For Christ dwells only in sinners. On this account he descended from heaven, where he dwelt among the righteous, to dwell among sinners. Meditate on this love of his, and you will see his sweet uh, consolation. So here's Luther encouraging this young man who is striving, again, to sort of establish righteousness as an interior reality that's found by the turning in on the self, to recognize that Christ only dwells with sinners. And if you try to establish yourself as someone who's not a sinner, then that's not the kind of person Christ dwells with. And you see that, don't you, in the, in the, in the life and the ministry of Jesus. I mean, the one thing that really chafed the Pharisees was Jesus eating and drinking with all the wrong people. I mean, he's having messianic banquets. Um, and they knew that these were messianic banquets. He was embodying something in the new kingdom of God that was now broached and brokered among humanity, and he's, he's eating with the wrong, wrong people. So Luther's right on this. I wanted to read you another thing here from Luther, and then we're getting into this, in this period of 1516, 1517, and 1518, where he's lecturing on Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. I'm saying all this because we're going to get to Galatians 5.1. So he's lecturing at this point on those particular moments, and Luther is leaning heavily against any residual Pelagianism that's around from scholastic theology. We talked about this last week with Gabriel Beale and the week before. This notion that um, humanity can turn to itself to arrest the mercy of God by human effort and achievement. I mean, Luther is leaning very heavily against this, as was his spiritual director in the Augustinian order, Johann von Staupitz. That's an important thing to remember. Luther's thought isn't born out of a vacuum. But there are angles of his understanding of justification by faith alone, what we heard about in our sermon today, that Martin Luther articulates in ways that had never been articulated before. I think that's fair enough to say. Um, but this is a, a quote from uh, Martin Luther when he comes to terms with the fact that God's righteousness or God's justice 
is not something to be understood in a purely juridical or legal context, but primarily in a grace-shaped gospel context. God's justice is grace and gospel-shaped with the power to save. This is what Luther says as these thoughts began to dawn on him. I began to understand that God's justice meant that people who were just in God's sight lived by a divine gift. It's the passive justice by which God justifies us through faith, as it is written in Habakkuk. They who through faith are just shall live by faith. I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates. The faith in question was trust in God's mercy. God's justice was passive. Now this is crucial. Not because it was inactive, but because it was a divine gift. It was God's grace. It was not earned, even in part, by human strength or by human effort. And, you know, Luther, by the way, it was not, I was reading this in the Hendricks uh, volume, and this is hard for us as Southerners, for those of you who consider yourselves to be Southerners, but I think it's a lot of you. Now, we sort of pride ourselves on the virtue of um, kindness and uh, um, non-angular speech, right? I don't know how to say that. But uh, th- this was not a virtue in, in Luther's day. I mean, Luther, I mean, they, they just said things that were, I mean, hard. He, he called uh, people who still held a, a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian uh, view and I quote here, a fools and pig theologians. Um, you know, so you're not getting invited to a lot of reunions for that kind of language. So that's how he, descri- how he described them. Okay. So um, back to um, law and gospel then, kind of getting a sense on this. Um, the law for Luther has come to its end in Christ. It no longer accuses. That's not its role. It cannot accuse a Christian. And when Luther, and this is a quote here, Luther understands that the grace of God which Christ has bestowed on me because I believe in him, that can make the first commandment a pleasure for me. The law is written on our hearts by the Spirit, producing new drives in us. But yet, still as sinners, and this is important, you know Luther's famous, and we have it on coffee cups around here, at the same time righteous and justified. For Luther, that was not pars pars. It was not in part sinner, in part righteous. It was totus totus. Totally righteous, totally sinful, both fully at the same time. And that meant that the law, even in the life of the Christian, because we retain our status as sinners, can drive us and push us and compel us to recognize that we are only received in God's sight on the basis of the good gift that God gives uh, to us. So it's been written on our hearts. This is again a quote from Luther. He no longer stands under a demand, but is joyfully moved toward God's law by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of this sort of sets us up here to read Galatians 5.1, which is what Gil and I had discussed we'd let be our springboard into our conversation today. Galatians chapter 5 of verse 1. I'll talk a little bit about Paul and then I'll turn it over. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So the question that we want to ask with a verse like chapter 5, verse 1 in Galatians that's using imperative language, do this, is how is that a gospel word? How is that a grace-shaped word? Because Paul is calling on believers to a motivating power, to a recognition of the motivating power of the gospel and the law's inability to engender that kind of motivation or 
the results of righteousness. The law just can't do it. It's not in its purview. Well, then what does motivate? What does drive us? Well, it's a recognition to stand firm in the grace of our Lord. Why? And this is, again, a very important ethical question. Why are we called to stand firm and not submit to a yoke of slavery? Well, which is what for Paul? Which is what for Luther? That yoke of slavery is allowing, again, a turn to ourselves to establish ourselves as justified in the sight of Christ. Why are we compelled by Paul and given imperative words from Paul and from Luther in his own particular framing of that to, to lean against that, to stand firm in the gospel and not submit to a yoke of slavery? Because when we are freed from ourselves, this is a move of genuine Christian freedom, to be freed from ourselves and the turning in on the self, to establish ourselves as the means by which we secure our standing before God. When we get freed from ourselves, we are now loosened to serve and to love others. That's the move. Um, how does Paul move in Galatians 5? Well, he goes and he gives us this imperative, and then he moves into chapter 6. And what does he say? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any spiritual transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So do you see the move here that Paul makes? You stand firm in the liberty that God has given you in Christ on the basis of his promise to you in Jesus Christ, period. Why? So that you can be freed from yourself. So that you can bear the burdens of others. Um, I have a colleague who's a Lutheran. We were batting this around one time. And uh, he said, you know, one of the things that Luther often said was, um, God uh, does not need your good works. Right? He doesn't. Now, that's been established for us in the free gift of our Lord. We heard that in the Romans 5 text today. God does not need our good works, but our neighbors do. Right? That's the being released from the tyranny of the self so that we can be freed um, to be with others. I, I was thinking about this just a little bit. Um, I, I spoke to a group of high school students Friday night at a small classical school out in Alabaster, and they were all high school graduates. I've never done anything like that before. And uh, so here I was with these high school students and thinking, you know, how do I talk to them you know, about the world in which they live? And, you know, it sort of dawned on me, and we're all reading this, if you read the Wall Street Journal or any sort of periodical, you're reading all about what's going on with this particular generation. And this, I mean, this generation has learned by very nature to be turned in on the self. And that's, 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 what this, that's what we are. And we fight, fight this in our own home. I mean, I, I, our kids can navigate our iPads better than we can. I hate it. I mean, but it's there. The big demon right there. Um, and so this sort of whole notion about the self and what it means to be a self, to be a human, to be an agent, um, that's a real challenge, I think, in our particular culture today. And the good gift of Luther's thought, Reformation thought, which, I th again, is born from Augustine and is born from the Bible and Paul, um, I think has a pressuring and a constraining role in our understanding of what it means to be a true self, what it means to be truly free because we've lost the ability in our culture today to be bored right because we are constantly moving between desire and boredom or, or, or frustration or lack of satisfa satisfaction with what we have and I think what we have here is this sort of move toward being free from ourselves for others I'm going to read one more Luther quote and then I'm going to turn it over to Gill talking about this whole notion 
about be, about Christian freedom. And this is not a quote from Luther. This is this is Hendrick. So it's up to debate whether or not you all be persuaded by this. Luther cannot accurately be called a mystical theologian, but elements of mystical theology appear in his writings. For example, Luther maintained that faith created a union with Christ. But that union was not a rapturous experience of losing oneself to the degree that the medieval mystics described. You know, you've read any of these medieval mystics? Julian of Norwich, John of Damascus. I mean, they kind of get lost in, the, in the, some sort of experience and encounter with God. That's not what Luther's mystical theology is. For Luther, the union with Christ empowered believers to look outward instead of inward. Relaying divine love from themselves to others in need. That is a serious move away from a monastic approach to the Christian existence. I mean, this is at the heart of what Luther is fighting against. This monastic approach to Christian existence, which what? Is by the very nature of the thing itself a turning in. And what Luther is pressing us toward, again, from deep reading of the Bible, and I think from deep reading of St. Augustine as well, is what is true union with Christ? It's a liberation from that necessity of turning in on the self. To be freed from that so that we can, number one, be the beneficiaries of God's free gift to us in faith. What, we, what were the three words? Rely, depend. I can't remember what the other one was. Trust. Trust. The three things we heard about faith. Why? They're all outward looking. It's receiving it as a passive agent. Why? So that I can be freed to love and to relay that divine love to others. And I don't know, I mean, I'm going to turn this over to Gil now, but I just think about this from a practical standpoint. You know, I, there, there are, we have raw moments in our lives. This week has been one, kind of one of those for me in, in certain ways, and, I, and it's been good for me. Um, and I think there, there's this whole notion of what happens when we get kind of caught up in our own minds. Do you get caught up there? I do. We get caught up through these deep internal conversations that, um, I'm like, who am I talking to? You're talking to yourself, right? And this, this sort of grappling with the self so that the self becomes the lens by which the whole world is viewed. The gospel pushes us away from that. That's why we come to church, right, to remember that our stories are primarily stories that are located in the gospel of our Lord, not the other way around. And that is a heavy leaning against, in the 16th century, against monastic culture, and in the 21st century, it's a heavy leaning against our technological culture sort of move toward the self and defining the self in its current location rather than being freed from that to relay the good news of, of Christ in love uh, to others. All right. Well, that was, that was my spaghetti on the wall. Your turn, Gil. We looked at that piece last week that you were here. Um, happens as the, in Mark's technical language as an Old Testament theologian, I'll speak for you. It's a performative word. The scripture. It's all about the scripture. And that's something that's worth remembering with Luther. That the word is activated. Remember that bloodstream. This is a different piece of art. But in that other one that was an earlier piece that informed this one. Where the blood of Christ was spurting from his side and landing on the head of Adam last week. Or actually on the chest. The heart of Adam. And what was the blood going through? Do you all remember somebody over here? The dove. The Holy Spirit. So the blood of Christ going through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit takes the Christ, as it were, and the blood of Christ and materializes it through the living word of Christ. 
and then it performs the very work which it speaks, which frees us. So that's where the, 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 the gospel comes over to something like Galatians 5.1. And we actually find it to be a sweet word, not a word of, oh, crud, you know, here's another law that I've got to do. I've got to stand firm and not submit myself again to a yoke of slavery. One more thing on the checklist. The exact opposite, where the word spurting, as it were, as blood through the Holy Spirit, landing squarely on my heart, or in this picture, on my head, uh, and turning me to something that I wasn't. Freed now, in fact, to love my neighbor, who needs my love. And that's, that's a little bit of the gospel and the law for Luther. So, so with all that, the performative word, as it's called. Um, well, I don't know what I wanted to do. Um, y'all correct me, we can spend all the time on this, or thought maybe to put a little bit of uh, kind of a chronology. Yesterday when I was up, um, I went through and just kind of put out some of the major years of Luther. I'm not going to go through all that, but kind of give a little context of where we're going. Most spend time, understandably, in Luther's early years when he gets converted uh, and goes into the monastery and all that. But the last 20 years of his life lived in relative, um, relative, it was only stable for Luther because he was basically in exile. He had to live in Wittenberg. He couldn't leave because he was under the protection of Frederick Devise. Uh, if he left Saxony, he'd be killed. And so it was peaceful only because he was joined in with the, uh, with the magistrates, with the state. And so he was able to sort of live a relatively old life. And so in middle age, he started to have children. Um, so in 1525, that's when he wrote his... Um, uh, bondage of the will, but that same year, I mentioned this last week, there are really sort of three significant blights on Luther that we have to sort of square up to. He wasn't, um, he was a saint, but he was a sinner. One of them, the Peasants' War, as it was called. Um, meanwhile, uh, gosh, I don't want to get too far into this, there was a peasant uprising, and Luther had a lot to do with it, uh, where his words started to go forth and it freed people. But then enthusiasts, what we might call Pentecostals now, uh, began to form up, and some of his colleagues even got behind this, and it was really sad. And he, uh, he gave permission, and I mentioned this last week, I think, to the German princes that, yes, in the case of, of them, if they pick up arms and they try to fight the state, you have permission, basically, to, uh, to retaliate. And they took this and they killed, I don't know, eight, nine hundred peasants in two hours or something like that. And it was just an absolute massacre called the Peasants' War. A real blight on Luther, and he felt it, I think. Um, he would uh, express later regret that he couldn't get that letter back. He wrote it in haste and sent it off, and by that point it was gone. So that happened in 1525. The same time, at the bondage of the will, he was getting married, uh, had a child in 1526, had another one in 1527 who died. Um, his first daughter died uh, in infancy after about seven months. Um, Tyndale's, I thought it would be also interesting to kind of see what's going on in England at the same time. Um, Luther wrote the New Testament in German, 1521-22. William Tyndale does the same thing in 1526. Uh, uh, another daughter is born in 1529, in the uh, same year that the catechisms, um, what Luther really uh, thought were some of his lasting pieces, Luther was the first theologian, really, to, because remember, he got married and he started to have children. That didn't happen before. Church leaders, church fathers, theologians didn't have kids. Luther had these kids. He and Katie von Bora adopted four orphans. 
So he had all these kids running around the former monastery. So what did he do? He says, these heathens, that's what he used to call them, these heathens need Christians. They need to be Christians. And so he wrote catechisms. He says, what does it mean to be a Christian? Answer, to be even Christian is to believe in the blood of Christ. Um, uh, in a small catechism, as large catechisms may be formed. In 1530, the Diet of Augsburg, um, it means something if you're into Luther, and that's when Protestants, that's the word Protestant, started to be formed. Uh, Henry VIII is getting divorced for the first time, Catherine of Aragon. Henry and Luther, I saw this yesterday, I was reminded of this, are almost exact, uh, exact contemporaries. Henry was about seven years younger, but they died within a year of each other. So they are growing, as it were, at the same pace. So when Martin Luther's life is becoming more stable, it's destabilizing over in England. So the Reformation is just starting in England, and it is the, the cat is out of the bag in Germany. It's, it's well on its way. Uh, later, um, uh, 1536 is when Calvin's Institutes were, um, uh, were written. This is an interesting part of Luther's life. He, um, he was not a well man. Uh, in 1536, he wrote the Schmalkald Articles, which he really thought were his last will and testament. They're a great piece to go read. You would call that the mature Luther. This is right after his Galatians lectures, which you also say is a mature piece. Uh, he wrote them because he thought he was going to die. This is awful. Um, he had a kidney stone. He, he battled kidney stones his whole life. Uh, and one of them got so bad, he really thought he was going to die. He started to get uremic poisoning. Um, uh, this is you know, 16th century medicine. What did they think? Well, to get rid of a kidney stone, you should drink a lot of beer, partly for the, um, the, uh, uh, as an analgesic, uh, but just kind of push it out. And so he just consumed gallons of beer and couldn't go to the bathroom, I mean, for like days, week. You know how it dislodged? He wanted to go home. He didn't want to die. I forget where he was, somewhere in the south. Uh, and he said, I don't want to die here. Take me back to Wittenberg. I want to die at home. And so on a bumpy cart ride, the kidney stone got dislodged. <laughs> I think of Green Mile or you know, Tom, anyway. And, uh, and he writes about it very floridly, as you can imagine, in one of his letters about the relief that he felt when uh, finally the stone was dislodged. So he thought he was going to die. That's when he, didn't, he wasn't well mentally, uh, physically. He, this is the last 10 years of his life. Uh, the other blights come on. He counseled one of the uh, German princes, Philip of Hesse, uh, that, that bigamy was allowed. Um, he tried to keep it under wraps. He said, look, you know, rather than having these affairs that you're having, and everybody knows it, marry somebody else, uh, but just don't tell anybody. Well, the letter got loose, and they used it against Luther. And, and, uh, and that's a difficult place from the Old Testament trying to, to make some sense of, uh, of what was going on. But um, anyway, so the bigamy of Philip of Hesse, one of Luther's daughters then died, I think. Um, huge deal. She was 13. She died in his arms. This is 1542. Um, he loved her dearly. In fact, even this place, in this little piece, to listen to Luther's, uh, this is one reason I love him so much. He's, uh, for all of his theological constructs, which I'm totally animated by, he brought it right down to the bottom. And he lived a... Uh, a real life with all these kids running around and people dying. Um, he was a pastor. He was a pastor theologian, one of the first. And so he's writing to Justice Jonas. Remember, Wittenberg's only about a thousand people, and especially if you were involved in the church and the university, uh, it was a relatively small club. Uh, and so Justice Jonas and Luther were close friends. He was another theologian teaching there at the university. 
and that Luther um, wrote Jonas right after his daughter Magdalena died. And he says, I believe the report has reached you that my dearest daughter Magdalena has been reborn into Christ's eternal kingdom. I and my wife should joyfully give thanks for such a departure and blessed end by which Magdalena escaped the power of the flesh, the world, and the devil. And yet the force of our natural love is so great that we're unable to do this without crying and grieving in our hearts or even without experiencing death ourselves. The features, the words, and the movements of the living and the dying daughter remain deeply engraved in the heart. Even the death of Christ is unable to take this away as it should. You, therefore, give thanks to God in our stead. For indeed, God did a great work of grace to, to us when he glorified our flesh in this way. Magdalena had, as you know, a mild and lovely disposition and was loved by all. God grant me and all my loved ones and all of our friends such a death, or rather, such a life. I find that very moving. I, mean, I can almost not read it without crying. And lost in there, I think, is a man fantastic, going to what you said, uh, Mark, about being tied and freed, freed, thanks be to God, to be there for our neighbor. Lost in all that is, uh, I know what we should do. We should give thanks that she's gone on and that she's with God. But I can't. But maybe, dear Jonas, my good friend, maybe you can have the faith. Maybe you can carry that over for me and give thanks to God for her life and for her death, which now means she has eternal life while Katie and I are over here, just remembering what it was like to hold her when she took her last breath. If you've done that, that's, that's a great word. That's a great word. And this is Luther, right there, four years from his own death, uh, having this, 1542. And so then from there, several others, um, and then uh, Katie miscarried, and Luther wrote a little tract saying, uh, Comfort and Hope for Women Who Have Miscarried. Um, so he's right there, just living life in the middle of this, this press. Uh, but then several uh, scholars um, would say, Would that Luther had died then, rather than living these last three years. Because uh, then right after that, I think it's not dissociated. What happened with him and the grief of his daughter, uh, as well as his own physical malady, he wrote um, on the Jews and their lies. It is an awful tract. I've not read the whole thing. It's some 200 pages. I've read a lot of it. And it is, it is just vitriol and vitriol and vitriol. And the Third Reich, evidently, it's still not completely sure how much they use this as some justification in the, uh, in the, in the 1930s. Uh, in Nuremberg, where we'll be, where all the marches were going on, they'd have this prominently displayed. Um, uh, I do think, and I'm way out of my league here, it's unfair to say that Luther inspired the anti-Semitic uh, rise of Nazi Germany, uh, but they certainly co-opted it for its own end. Um, and, uh, and he wrote it. And his last four sermons before he died in Eisleben uh, were, were in this vein. Um, it's, a, it's a real blight on Luther's legacy, to be sure, something we've got to sort of grapple with and make sense of. So he wrote that in 1543. Um, the Council of Trent has now started. Uh, Luther goes to Eisleben with his three sons to, uh, to settle a family dispute, which he did, uh, but he became ill. He died uh, in, in February of 1543, and then Henry VIII dies less than a year later, uh, for anybody who wants to kind of track along. So, so the life of Luther, it's very... Um, it's a compelling life. It's an interesting life. Um, it, I was telling Mark, it's interesting, both Henry and Luther, and then I'll stop and we'll see what we want to do 
they uh, they really you know, oftentimes revolutions are for young men um, for for both Henry uh, who was waiting because Catherine of Aragon uh, it was not until she was 40 when she didn't produce a male heir uh, did Henry start his maniacal quest uh, for for stability uh, and similar to Luther what in 15 25 when he wrote the bonds of the will he was 42 years old that's old that's old now I'm saying that funny um, uh, certainly older then they both lived to be old men um, for their time and did a lot of their work in that um, in that latter third of their life um, so anyway should we look at this or do you want to ask questions or what what's what's on people's minds Mark why don't you come up and people can ask you questions more than me but. what was what was uh, Luther's conception of the church I, mean, I assume he didn't call it Church, that, that came around no. later. Yep. Uh, it, was it sort of the church in Wittenberg, and this is this is what we believe is distinguished from the Roman church? Or? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, let me go first, and you come in second. Um, Gil's knowledge of the details in these things is super. Well, I, I'm kind of <laughs> goofy with this stuff. Um, Protestantism was going several ways at this point. Remember, Protestant has the word protest in it. Um, the, the German princes in 1529-1530 under something called the Diet of Spire, uh, where anyway the, um, they started they protest the official edict that all um, needed to, to submit to Rome, and so Protestantism as a word was born then, and then as it began to 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 splinter into different groups, one of the real questions was what do we do with the tradition? Um, as I heard it put once, you know that junk drawer that you have. So that was the metaphor. You take the junk drawer out, and you could look at three different ways Protestants, what, what they did with all the junk. After you pour it out, uh, Luther, um, Lutheranism, and to a significant extent, uh, what was going on in England with Thomas Cramner, they sorted and they took most of it and they put it back in. But they just put it in order. And they said, this has deteriorated. And so all the solas come out. It's not faith and works. It's not Christ and the church not scripture and tradition. It's just scripture. It's justice. So they took most of it and put it back in. What does that mean? It's like what Fran asked last week about Mary, for instance. Luther had a really high view of Mary, for instance. I mean, she's up here in this painting again. Um, did not just sort of jettison everything away. Now, all the stuff like the assumption of Mary and, um, and, and Anne being sinless as well, Mary's mom, you know, they threw all that away. So to get to your good question, so Luther had a fairly high view of the church played out in the sacraments. Now he whittled down the seven sacraments or even the 69 that some of the, the, uh, the, the Roman church had to just baptism and, and the Eucharist. But I mean, a really, really high, much higher than I have on, on Christ's real presence. It's just a half step and a very confused half step below transubstantiation in, um, in, the, uh, in the bread and the wine, for instance. Uh, so Luther kept a very high view of the church and absolutely did not call it Lutheran church. He said, you know, far be it that anybody should follow Luther. Um, uh, so I just, I'll shut up, um, let Mark come in. A very high view of the church. Um, and then other parts of Protestantism, like the Anabaptist on the far end, they emptied the junk drawer and they just burned the drawer. <laughs> they decided there's no more, you know, um, to the place. You know, there is no church. It's just a congregation or assembly. Um, that started to be played out in Scotland as well and some other, other things. But you have anything else to add? No, not really. I, mean, I, I do think it's fascinating to see, and I, again, I grew up in a kind of the Anabaptist tradition, so I get the burning of the whole drawer. 
I do think it's fascinating to realize that during this period, for people like Melanchthon and Luther, Bootser, the, the first generation reformers, and the second generation as well, it's equally important that they have the best of the church's tradition on their side. You know, so it's not an anti-tradition right. kind of move. It's just again, it's properly ordering things. Um, they were reforming the church. Yeah. They didn't say the church is wrong. They said let's let's form it again. Let's yeah. go back ad fontes, yeah. and and uh, here's a fancy word that shows up in the literature: repristinate. <laughs> mm-hmm. It means to make it pristine again. They would say you can't repristinate this sort of thing. That's usually the the adjectives attached to it. But mm-hmm. um, they did want to reform it, not repristinate. Um, anyway, whatever that's worth. Um, yes. Yeah, pull us right to where we need to be, I'm sure, sir. go on and on and on about well, this. I get pretty excited about it. Um, you take it. So it's big reason for Mark to do it. It's your I know y'all wanted to come see Mark and y'all are getting me. So Leland, uh, just beforehand, Leland made the good point. Uh, right before Henry VIII was, of course, Henry VII. And this was the Thirty Years' War, um, Civil War in England, just absolute anarchy, uh, blood everywhere. Really important to remember that. Because it is, we're not Catholic light. I get really animated about that. Um, that's that's okay. I mean, because that's what's out there. That's the trope that's just repeated. Um, uh, that it's the middle way between Protestantism and and uh, and, uh, and, and 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 Rome. And so we're just like, you know, come, we'll let you do anything you want. That's just wrong. Uh, Henry's maniacal. I mean, that's what it was. He became a maniac um, to get a male heir. It wasn't about lust. He had, he had all he wanted in terms of you know, satiating desire. Why was a male heir so, so important? That was the only way to ensure stability. A monarch is judged in history. He was totally focused on this. Only if when he dies, the realm continues stronger than when he started. And he could do anything he wanted in terms of military conquest or anything else while he was alive. But if he didn't have a male heir to ensure stability going forward, he would be judged, he absolutely was convinced of this, as a complete and total failure. And so it became consuming to him. Now where did Luther come into all that? Not easily. Um, Luther was happening much earlier. Um, by the time Henry broke from, from, uh, from Rome in 1534, uh, most of the Re- Reformation in Germany was well underway. And Calvin was just about to start writing the Institutes. Philip Melanchthon was doing everything. You had a lot of Englanders visiting Wittenberg. Uh, so there's a strong early Lutheran influence coming in the early days of the, the church. Uh, so Thomas Cranmer, I'll use this as an end, um, in 1532, uh, two years before, one year before he became archbishop and two years before the break with Rome, was sent to Nuremberg, where we're also going to visit, 
to be the imperial ambassador. Um, so England's ambassador to Charles V, who was Catherine of Aragon, the queen's nephew. I have to think about all this stuff. Uh, and what did he do? He fell in love two times. <laughs> he fell in love with the gospel, and he heard the evangelical theology, that's what it was called, the euangelion, the gospel of Luther in 1532, and he fell in love for the second time. He married Andreas Osiander, uh, one of the reformers, uh, married his daughter. Osiander wouldn't have let Cramner marry, because there was always a political subtext to that, unless Cramner signed off as a Protestant, but he couldn't go back to England with that. He was still married, I mean, he was still a priest, and and so she was a, sort of his secret wife for a while. That happened in 1532, and then he was totally surprised when he became the archbishop. He was like, what? You know, I don't want to do that. And so he got waited for, I think it was like five months, hoping it would go away, and it didn't, so he had the archbishop. And, and the rest, as they say, is history. So good question, it was way too long. That's something to mark, and then we're going to stop. No, that's there. good. That's great. Well, the printing press has got to the word out. Yep, yep. History is so fluid at this point. I mean, there's so much going on. Um, the Holy Roman Empire, the printing press started, what, it was in 1480, I think. So it worked out the kinks, and then Luther popped, and the pamphlets went wild. Uh, people were reading. Literacy was on the rise. Uh, so it was being printed both in Latin and in German. Uh, so you had the scholarly publications, which are now accessible. You know, so, so the universities in Paris and Cologne and Wittenberg and Prague, they could all talk about this new learning, also in Oxford, Cambridge first, because uh, Latin was the, was the English of the time. You had to write in Latin because everybody knew Latin. Um, so that's how the word spread. But then to, uh, to the common man, he wrote in German too, which is very unusual. That didn't happen before. Um, for the first time, uh, uh, it happened over in England too. People started to talk about religion. Um, it didn't happen before that. Very unusual. Whole lot of blood. Whole lot of blood. I mean, this is a bloody, 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 bloody century. Which is why, last thing, this you know, Christ defeating death and the devil, uh, when the blood coming and landing right on Cranach's head, all that. I mean. It, Two of Luther's daughters died. Remember, right before he converted, he had two good friends die. I mean, he had a brother die. The plague is happening. Uh, Luther fled Wittenberg, I think, three times in his life. Uh, Katie von Bora, who lived nine years after Luther, she died because she was fleeing Wittenberg again about the plague, and she fell off a cart, had an accident, died from complications. They were poor. They didn't make any money in all this because the pamphlets were going out. There was nothing like a royalty. And so it was just, I mean, it's crazy, crazy, crazy times. So, whole lot of blood. Whole lot of blood. Anyway, is that good? <laughs> Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for this time, uh, for the period in history, which is not by any means um, perfect, but Lord, uh, so pivotal for us in a real and tangible way as we also still fight uh, the world, the flesh, the devil, um, your enemies. Lord, give us the grace uh, to have the faith, to, to stand firm, um, not submitting ourselves again to a yoke of slavery, but to, to, uh, to hear your promise, um, a word that comes uh, as the blood lands on our head and goes into our heart, your blood shed for us, that we would be freed thereby 
to uh, to love you, but to love and be loved by each other. Um, come, Lord, and uh, for this reforming word, form us again uh, in your image um, for your good purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.